Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Frequently, this program looks at electricity because electricity is so vital in modern life. And we hear a great deal about resiliency, and then we get a storm, and we hear that hundreds of thousands of people are without power. We hear a great deal about decarbonization, and then we hear there are huge arguments about whether you can sustain the electric system without carbon, without particularly natural gas. To look at this, to look at these issues and how they affect us, I have today two experts, two people I'm enormously fond of and hugely admiring of their knowledge. Joining me today are Robert G, president of G Strategies Group and energy writer, Rod Cookrow. So we'll begin with you, Robert. Bob, if I may call you Bob, that's what yes, I'm used to. Llewellyn. Uh, Bob, where do we stand? The administration is pushing very hard for decarbonization, which means burning no coal and less natural gas. Is that correct? Yes, Llewellyn. That's pretty much uh, uh, indicated in many of the policies that this administration that uh, President Biden ran on and that are have been implemented certainly uh, by uh, his appointees at the U.S. Department of Energy through enabling legislation that's been passed both in the uh, COVID relief legislation as well as the infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure bill that was enacted by Congress. It's also reflected in the appointments he's made at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, where there was a heightened sensitivity with respect to the role of uh, decarbon decarbonizing the, the electric grid and also uh, taking into account uh, environmental considerations relative to commissioning a new infrastructure uh, for the power sector. Europe has been destabilized, possibly because of an over-reliance on renewables, uh, and then they ran into a big wind drought, particularly in the United Kingdom. But the whole of the European energy market has been destabilized. The price of natural gas is up to 10 times what it was a year earlier and they are just scraping by. Are we in danger in the rush to decarbonize of destabilizing the American grid system? I would say that we, there are some lessons to be learned from the European experience. Uh, and then there are also some, some we need to, to determine which lessons to take away and which lessons don't apply to the United States. One of the lessons to take away is that when you're moving towards an energy transition, you want to make sure that you have sufficient supply reflecting the, the wide array of both innovative as well as legacy technologies for power generation to make sure that you have sufficient supply to meet demand as well as uh, meeting your, your policy goals. I think what Europe did was it was, a, it was a perfect storm of different forces, some of which was within their control and others not. What was within their control was to try to develop a transition path that would be a lot smoother than what they're experiencing by at least acknowledging that they're going to continue to have to rely on some forms of legacy fossil energy as they move towards cleaner forms of electricity. What they didn't have control over was the rebound of, the, of their economies after the pandemic, which drove demand at historically high levels relative to supply because they were switching their supply mix. Now, 
For the United States, I think the lesson to take away is that we need to be careful. Obviously, if we're moving toward cleaner forms of energy, we don't want to jeopardize reliability. We want to make sure that we have uh, supply certainty. We want to make sure that uh, we have enough uh, electricity to meet uh, peak periods, both winter as well as summer. Uh, the virtue that we have, however, is that we are less dependent upon imported supplies uh, uh, versus Europe, which uh, relies to a large extent on uh, gas supplied by Russia, which, if you've been following the, uh, the news commentary race recently, has, has been quite problematic. Uh, Ron, can I ask you, are, are we in danger of destabilizing the grid while we go for this grand uh, 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 carbon-free future? Well, there's always a danger of destabilizing the grid, but but historically that's been because of natural causes or sometimes uh, as occurred uh, last year with the colonial pipeline hack by, uh, by, by, by sort of bad actors out there in cyberspace. But first of all, I wanna thank you for inviting me back onto your show, I appreciate it. You know, the common theme in your first two questions uh, had to do with decarbonization and how the US is approaching it versus how the European Union is approaching it. And I think there's a, uh, Bob explained very well how Europeans in trying to uh, fulfill their goals uh, have not really settled on what the right prescription is. For example, not only did Germany close down its coal plants, but now it's moving to close down its nuclear plants, which is a large source of carbon-free electricity uh, because of concerns uh, on the back end about uh, the fuel cycle. Uh, in the United States, you know, there, again, there's a consensus from the Obama-Biden administration on down through industry and not just the electric utility sector, but major technology companies and, and major retailers like Walmart that they all want to decarbonize. And that's evidenced in the fact that many uh, publicly traded companies have now uh, adopted what they call ESG principles, uh, environmental social governance principles that cater to Wall Street uh, desires to see them uh, use more clean energy and, and burn less carbon fuels. The problem is, is that there's only so much that can be done. Uh, once again, the pace is uneven, depending upon what utility or state you're talking about. What companies want to do may not necessarily be, be feasible because of state policies, because of market conditions or the price of fuels. And I'll give you an example of that, and that is that uh, coal this past winter was actually in many places cheaper than natural gas, and utilities turned to burn coal which of course produces more greenhouse gases than uh, those that burn natural gas. So- uh, You make a big mistake generally, uh, Bob, uh, don't you, when you go for the cheapest thing today, natural gas for a couple of years was the cheapest thing, suddenly it's not. At the moment, it's wind power. Uh, don't you have to plan these things out 30 or 40 years to get a balanced portfolio of sources? Yes, ideally, you should try to do long-term forecasting and planning as you try to move away from your traditional generation technologies. And some states have done a better a job at that than others, quite frankly. The problem that you pointed out is if you're simply chasing supply based upon price, that's it's really, you're buying into a lot of price volatility because there's no, there are few, I would say, technologies where the price is going to be stable from a commodity standpoint, natural gas being among them. And we see, you know, we, we grow very uh, uh, content and somewhat uh, 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 lazy in terms of the homework we need to do when we are benefited by, for instance, such a large surplus of natural gas that we've had over the last decade or so. 
But I think the danger is that you don't want to rely on either on gas or any other technology to, to the extent where it's going to put your, your grid stability at risk or cause political issues owing to price affordability. I hold to the view that uh, the pace of transition has got to be politically tolerable under, you know, doesn't matter which state you're working under, which, which White House you're working under, the public has got to make sure that prices are kept affordable. They want clean electricity, yes, but they also want affordable electricity. And, and if you can't do both, I think that would unfortunately jeopardize this process of an energy transition. God, uh, this administration is trying to give a lot of money to the electric industry to clean it up, but also to improve transmission. Apparently, there's a great need to build transmission because uh, the sun and the wind are plentiful where the uh, consumers are few. So you have to move electricity from one part of the country, from one region to another. How is that going? What do you read into this administration? So far, I've only heard it talk about a decarbonization, jobs, and the desirability of alternative energy. The other things which the Department of Energy is responsible for, we have not heard much about. Well, um, in fact, the things are moving along quite well uh, for those that are advocating for a robust rebuilding of the uh, long distance transmission system. Uh, the infrastructure bill passed by Congress uh, had billions of dollars in it to help uh, build out long distance lines to bring energy from, uh, from rural areas of the country where you might have wind farms or solar farms to the load centers or where the demand is in large cities. Uh, the Department of Energy just a few weeks ago released a roadmap on how that can be accomplished. Uh, and it's a rather complicated process, but it would include DOE taking a role, uh, and Bob may want to talk about this, in being able to sort of override local objections to needed, trans needed transmissions projects. At the same time, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is looking at reforming the rules by which it uh, approves long distance transmission lines to make those easier to cite. And, and uh, moreover, to try to sort of clean up the, the queues, the, the, the projects that are in line in the various regions of the country, uh, many of which have been in the queue for a long time but aren't being built. They wanna see that queue shrink and that the lines that are ready to be built and ready to be financed uh, can, can be put out there. Uh, what's interesting to, uh, to follow up what Bob was talking about uh, in terms of long-term planning for, for generation, uh, the Energy Information Administration just recently said that this year in 2022, the largest addition to generating capacity for electricity will be solar. Uh, there'll be something on the order of 26, uh, I think, uh, gigawatts of solar uh, installed and only nine Point three or four gigawatts of natural gas. Um, if you look at that historical trend, I mean, no one expected, frankly, I think even three or four years ago, that solar would come on so strong as the uh, generation source of choice for utilities. At the same time, where utilities can build solar because of weather conditions, for example, you still see a lot of utilities in the Midwest and the South um, planning to build natural gas uh, as replacements for coal plants. So, I mean, the good news in that picture is that there are no plans to build any coal plants uh, in 2022. That, those days are done and gone, as uh, Nick Akins of, of AEP would say. Uh, and so I, th I think there's a lot to be optimistic about, both on the generation side and on the transmission side, to get those cleaner sources of power to where it's needed. Bob, how do you see the Department of Energy 
under this administration, and for that matter, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission? Is it heavily loaded on the environmental side without regard to some other considerations? Uh, to be fair, I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that they have, you know, people that are there that are that don't understand markets and don't understand technology, or for, or for that matter, the limits of, of policy, even at the state level. What you do see, however, and this is true with any White House, you do see obviously more of a, of a, of a bias towards uh, renewables under, a you know, as this is a Democratic White House, this has always been the case, not just with this administration, but with previous uh, Democratic White Houses. So that's going to be reflected in a lot of the policies that the Department of Energy is, is, is promulgating. I do applaud the administration for taking an aggressive effort to try to get more transmission built. Lord knows it's been very difficult to build transmission under multiple administrations because there are instances where the, the let's just say that the intervening states that don't necessarily benefit transmission might not have an incentive to uh, allow for the siting of transmission through their state if their citizens don't see a benefit. So under the new legislation that was signed into law under the bipartisan infrastructure framework, it does provide for uh, some remedies to give the federal government some more authority to be able to site and build more, uh, more long distance transmission in instances where the states either didn't make a timely decision or made a decision that was not supported by the record. Now, if you were to talk to the states about it, they are quite upset because Frank and I have, for the reason that they believe that the legislation is an overreach because they don't believe themselves to be at fault for the delays in siting and commissioning new transmission. Rather, their view is that there are other factors or other players, such as other federal agencies that have been more the root cause of delay than state lethargy or state inaction. So depending upon who you talk to, you get a different story. Bob makes a good point there because uh, certainly when you're talking about crossing these large states in the Midwest and the upper, upper West and, and the Western United States, so much of that land is owned by the Park Service or the Forest Service or, 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 or the Agriculture Department, not to mention large state agencies that manage state lands. And so it's not, it's not so easy just to sort of lay down plan for a long distance line because you have to deal with so many different uh, parties that can intervene and sort of gum up the works and getting these projects done. But I think Bob's bottom line point was right is that this legislation that's in place now does allow DOE to have some tools and FERC is developing its own tools that will allow some of those projects to move along at a faster clip. The uh, Department of Energy under Secretary Jennifer Granholm has announced that they are seeking a thousand employees to help implement uh, some of the new laws and the new to dispose or uh, dispense, I shouldn't say dispose, dispense, uh, maybe a Freudian slip, I don't know, uh, but uh, of the huge amount of money that's available. But the idea of a thousand new employees uh, sort of suggests to me that there'll be a lot of chaos. Uh, a thousand new employees take a while to find where the bathroom is, let alone what they are doing and how they implement the policy of the president. Uh, do you think this can be smoothly achieved, Bob G? You were at the department, you hired people at the department, you ran staffs at the department. How quickly can you get a staff up to speed on the very complex issues involved? 
Understandable. And, you know, I think this is going to be something for the Human Resources Department of the DOE to have to play a major hand on. I think, let me let me try to take a charitable view. It, it is a lot of people to absorb. I think the current uh, full-time employee payroll of the Department of Energy is around 12,000. So, you're, you know, if you're adding 1,000 to that, that's an awful lot of new uh, FTEs, as they say in Washington, to have to absorb. I suspect they're all, not all going to try to be pigeonholed uh, at uh, in the Forestall building, which is the DOE building uh, that's adjacent to the Smithsonian downtown. They'll probably, if, they're, if, they, if they go about choosing their uh, new employees on a, on a selective basis and finding the best areas uh, and places for them to work, hopefully a lot of them can be cited, not just in Washington, but all around the country, particularly where there are uh, there's a huge presence of national labs, field offices, things like that, all of whom can play a role in promoting the R&D that's so valuable for our country. Uh, so I suspect that DOE has probably got some type of a game plan they're working on right now to try to figure out how to hire these employees, get the best talent brought in through the door, and try to get them placed at the, at the appropriate point. Now, if they don't do that, obviously, there's going to be a lot of problems. But uh, I'm going to take an optimistic wait-and-see attitude for the time being. Well, I think you've just raised a very interesting subject, and that is the national laboratories. There are 17 of them. They are run by the Department of Energy. They are extraordinary places of creativity, of uh, enormous concentration of brain power and of technical expertise. Uh, but we haven't heard much of them since this administration came into power. Uh, we look to them for innovation. Rod, do you feel they have a role, and what is that role at present? Whereas uh, uh, we've just heard that there are 12,000 employees at the Department of Energy, there are about 100,000, I think, in the labs which are operated, which operate as contractors, although they are actually wholly owned by the department. Uh, correct, correct, Willen. Uh, well, certainly not all 17 of those labs work on energy exclusively. Many of them uh, deal with weapons-related issues, uh, which is why many of them were initially established. Uh, but those that do address energy issues uh, are hard at work, but they tend to do their work in the background. I mean, they all have fairly transparent websites where you can find out what they're working on and when reports are published. But a number of the labs, like Lawrence Livermore in particular, uh, and the National Renewable Energy Laboratory were chastened during the previous administration because they were producing reports that were optimistic uh, uh, about the potential deployment of renewables uh, without much of a cost to reliability of the grid. And those studies were, were actually uh, sort of held, held back by the Trump administration and the Department of Energy. Uh, and I think then the, the, the labs became a little more circumspect about uh, describing what they're doing for people. But one place they are doing a lot of research, and I think this is going to be one of the most important topics in electric power in the next several years, is carbon capture and storage and utilization. Uh, that, of course, is technology that you essentially uh, marry to a power plant, a coal plant, or a gas plant, and you extract carbon uh, to some degree, and then you put it underground or inject it into uh, pipelines to be used for enhanced oil recovery. Uh, Rod, what about nuclear and the national laboratories vis-a-vis -vis electricity? Well, among the most important work being done now at the national labs is, is at the laboratory in Idaho, the Idaho National Laboratory, uh, INL for short. They are doing a computer simulation 
of constructing what's called a small modular reactor, reactors that could be built at far uh, less cost and much more quickly than the large scale reactors we've been used to over the last uh, several decades. Uh, and if this were to, uh, to succeed, it would allow deployment of small reactors all around the country for use in, in near cities and military bases and also for, for export use. So there's a, there's a great amount of optimism that the small modular reactor may someday actually come to market at a reasonable cost uh, for the utility sector. Yeah, I, I agree. I've talked to people in the financial community about the, the future of what they call SMR, small modular reactors. And many of them are, are quite bullish that this is going to be a technology that will play a key role in providing clean energy uh, in the decades to come. Uh, I, it's interesting that the national labs are playing such a such a important role that uh, Rod had described it, it, and it harkens back what I said, the use, the use of supercomputing capability will be uh, critical to simulating operating conditions that could have the effect of advancing the commercial deployment of this technology because it means you don't have to wait years to field test. You could accelerate that down to a period of months through the use of supercomputers. So I think this is something that could be potentially a, a game changer in the years to come. I want to point out that they did a huge amount to promote the development of computing and computers. Uh, finally, uh, let's take a look at this issue of resilience. Uh, all utilities like to talk resilience. They always say we're headed for a more resilient future. Resiliency is our prime objective, which means basically, I think, keeping the lights on. Rod Cookrow, are we getting more resilient or less so? And every time the wind blows, why do we have to empty the fridge and take the batteries and put them next to the, uh, the flashlight? Well, it's certainly a popular catchphrase, Llewellyn. And um, the problem is for the utility sector is they like to talk about resilience until all of a sudden they don't want to because they've encountered an event that shows that they're not resilient. But in defense of the utility sector, they are, they do want to make the investments in resilience. However, many of them are very expensive investments. You mentioned batteries, for example. And to make those investments, they have to they have to convince their state regulatory bodies that it's worth allowing them to lay off those costs on people who pay the rates. Uh, and sometimes you're going to get a different opinion from the state regulator uh, who's worried more about protecting consumer costs uh, than you're going to get from the uh, utility that says, well, we have to do this to make sure we can keep the lights on. And that's important, not just for sort of creature comforts, but sometimes major industries will not locate in a state where there's an unreliable, historically unreliable supply of electricity. Uh, so, I mean, it's an important thing that utilities strive for, but there's still a very uneven compliance around the country with the sort of technologies and investments that uh, will really lead to a, a resilient grid across the board. Uh, Gee, you've been a resilient fellow in this world of, uh, of uh, resilience. Uh, tell us about it. You know, it's interesting. I agree with everything that Rob just said, by the way. Uh, if you were to look at the nomenclature in the electric power sector over the last 20 years, the term resilience probably could not be found in any piece of single piece of literature 20 years ago. It wasn't until you started to have harsh weather events like the derecho in New Jersey that people began incorporating that into their vocabulary. And so I think what it means to most people is the ability to withstand uh, uh, let's just say 
harsh weather na nature events as well as man uh, man-made uh, events uh, through uh, 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 hostile acts, which means that you need to, as, as Rob pointed out, you need to spend money to harden your system appropriately, particularly if you're if you know you're in a region of harsh harsh weather events. You need to enhance cybersecurity, which is everybody and everywhere. But you also need to try to figure out how to integrate the multiple forms of technology that are going, going to be inputted into the grid to make them real-time, uh, uh, reactive, uh, and responsive to both spikes in demand or spikes or, or, or changes in temperature, and to be able to weather through and, and, and plow through events which uh, ordinarily might bring a system down. And unfortunately, we're not there yet. I think that, as Rob pointed out, the, the, the commitment has been uneven, but we need to get our act together to make sure that most utilities are marching along the same path because the risk of failure are too great. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And of course, you know, we take electricity for granted as people in Texas did where they went without it for five days and up to 250 people froze to death. Tremendous loss of life in modern times from not having a heating source, electricity, uh, or the ability to access heat using electric pumps, et cetera. Uh, any last words? We're at the end of our program. Anything cheerful, Bob, about electricity you would like to say going forward? I would say the good news is that everybody you know, takes for granted electricity. They don't want to pay more for it than what they think its value is. But I would say, on the bright side, electricity has, has done uh, wonders to enhance our lifestyle, not just those of us in first world countries like the United States, but all over the world where, where there's been electrification of regions of the country that have been dark. It enhances our lifestyles, but it's also bringing us a, a higher level of human interaction with one another. Obviously, you know this, this medium uh, using the internet and, and the Zoom software did not exist uh, a number of years ago. Uh, and so it's given us an opportunity to connect, to communicate, to transfer information, to, to get to know one another. And hopefully in the process, rather than dehumanizing us, you know, perhaps the social scientists might want to say, it gives us a better platform to understand one another. So I'm optimistic. I, I hope, I, I care to be optimistic about the future of the United States and as well as mankind through electricity. Rod, what story, quickly, in a few words, do you want to be covering? What is the good news you would like to cover? Well, the happy story about electricity is that you have both a resident, you have residential, commercial, and industrial consumers uh, across the board all being willing to pay more money for green power, that is clean power. If they get it from wind or solar, they're willing to pay a premium. In fact, some companies will demand that a utility like Dominion Resources of Virginia, for example, invest more in that if they're going to locate, say, a data center in Northern Virginia. Uh, so I think the fact that you have people who are willing to put their money where their mouth is and paying for electricity, which is still relatively inexpensive compared to communication services like cable and telephones, uh, shows that the, the nation's awareness about climate change and uh, decarbonization is real. That's our show for today. Uh, we hope that the lights stay on for you. And remember, COVID's not over, so do wear your mask. It's not that big a pain to do it. Cheers.
White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.